Well, good morning, Parkview Church. It is good to be with you here today. Uh, and man, I just have to say, it's one of those Sunday mornings. I don't know about you in your living room or wherever you're, you're sitting here watching this. It's one of those days where I was prone to lose my voice before getting up here. So well done, worship team still serving us uh, in our pajamas and, and so forth. So well done. I'm so thankful for that. Uh, my name is Thomas, and I'm the pastor of community groups and equipping here at Parkview. Uh, today it's my privilege to uh, open the Bible with you. So I just encourage you, if you at home. It's so I know so many distractions, so many things going on. You so, inevitably, it seems we tune in to worship together, scattered across the area, and every single thing in your living room is a task that seems like just became incredibly urgent. So I encourage you go get your Bible right now. Come sit down, open it. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 9. And I have to tell you, just a beloved passage, a wonderful passage. It's, it's made me think, as we've gone through this pandemic time, I know so many times I've thought, I just want to get out of town. I just want to, I would like to just get, go travel somewhere and sort of be somewhere different instead of in my living room or in my, you know, uh, around my house, around, around the only city we can sort of be in right now. Uh, and, and inevitably, as soon as I think that, Google serves up an ad to me about, hey, let's get out of town. Would you, we've got great deals on plane flights and all that kind of stuff. My favorite one um, is the one that pops up, hey, see Europe in a week. Come on. No, you can't see Europe in a week. You spend the whole time traveling. There's just too much to see. First Corinthians 9 is going to feel a little bit like that today. There is just so much wonderfulness to see here that, you know what, we're not going to get it all. I, and so I would just, if if you feel the inkling as you read the Bible during the week and in the morning, this is one that's just a great one to return to, sit in, meditate on, marinate in, soak up as much as you can because the gospel is so clear and so beautiful to our hearts in this passage. So, 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll sort of read along as we go instead of me reading it all at once. But the main thing that God wants to speak to us today, I believe, from 1 Corinthians 9 is this big message. Submit every freedom to the mission of God. Submit every freedom to the mission of God. This passage is going to show us three aspects of what it means to submit to God's mission. First, that we would observe the gospel pattern. Second, that we would apply the gospel strategy. And finally, third, that we would embrace the gospel power. So, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, and uh, first I'm going to spend some time in prayer for us today. So join me if you would. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see all that you have to show us today in your word. Give us ears to hear all that you have to speak to us. Free us from distractions. For these next few minutes, give us a vision of what it would mean, what it would look like to be a 1 Corinthians 9 church, to be defined by as individuals and as a community these wonderful verses. Help us to examine our hearts rightly, and as we do so, Lord, remind us that we can never think too lowly of our sin, and we can never think too highly of our Savior. So we ask, show us Jesus. Father, show us Jesus. So, show us the Son so that we won't be downtrodden, but that we'll be encouraged as we read. So do all that and more. Make us the beautiful church, the wonderful, powerful church that you envisioned for us to be in this passage. Do all this and more more than I could ever think to ask, Lord, for your son's name. Amen. So as I said in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, 
we will learn three things. The first thing that we'll learn is how to observe the gospel pattern. That's the first thing that we need to do to submit every freedom to the mission of God. So we, I'll, I'll take you a step back. Last week we were in the uh, Global uh, Outreach Conference. The week before that we were in 1 Corinthians 8. And this passage, of course, follows after 1 Corinthians 8. So just to jog your memory, remember that uh, Paul is addressing the issue in the Corinthian church of whether uh, the Christians there are free to eat meat offered to idols, to enter the idol temple, um, to, to eat meat from the market that was, had been previously offered to idols. In fact, uh, it was impossible in the city of Corinth to avoid the reality of constant religious uh, undertones, overtones. Uh, if you had a job, uh, you would inevitably be part of a trade guild that would be associated with an, idol, with an idol. They wouldn't call them idols, they would just call them the temple, the statue of a god or whatever it would be. Uh, if you had a house, you almost inevitably would be, uh, every other house on your block would have uh, little household deities that were set there to sort of protect the house. So it was inevitable that if you were going to just live in a, really any ancient city, but Corinth in particular, you were going to have to deal with this reality. How are we going to interact as people who believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, how are we going to, you couldn't just opt out. It wasn't an option, so we had to figure out how to do it. And people in Corinth, some of the, apparently the prevalent thought in the Corinthian church was, hey, Paul, we know the idols are nothing. It's just a piece of wood. We, we've woken up to that reality. There's, that is to say, it's, it's almost sort of a really modern notion. Look, Paul, there's no monsters in the closet. You know, there's no, there's no such thing as ghosts. There's no monsters in the closet. The idol isn't real. So who cares what I do? I can eat. I can go to the temple. I can do whatever I want because I'm so free. And Paul says, yes, but you haven't thought of your neighbor. You have not thought of your brother and sister. And the key passage being 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 11, where he says this, but take care that this right of yours, this is going to be a big word in our passage today, does not somehow, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So, the first half of this passage today is taken up with Paul's explanation of his rights he says, oh, you think you have rights, right? Okay, you have rights, you're right. Let me show you how I deal with my rights, with my freedoms, with my personal liberties, and the way that that interacts with the mission that God has given every believer in Jesus. And these first 19, well, yeah, 19 verses, actually Paul is going to lay the case for why, this will sound counterintuitive, but for why the Corinthians owe him money. He says, I'm, I'm a worker in the gospel, I'm your your uh, worker, your apostle, uh, but you should be paying me. And we'll see why in a second. Let's begin in verse 1. He says, you can look down with me in your Bible at home. Am I not free? There we go. I immediately, freedom and rights, liberties and so forth. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That is the proof. Of course I'm an apostle. Look, here you are. You're, you're, the, you're the fruit of my apostleship. First, Paul appeals to the Corinthians' personal experience. He says, you know that I deserve this because you, you've seen it firsthand. You're the evidence that I deserve it. 
Secondly, we go on in, in verses 3 through uh, 7. It says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that is Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who, do not, do not have, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? There you see he's beginning to talk about being paid. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So the second thing Paul does is he appeals to common sense. He says, look, have you ever seen a soldier who goes off to war and then he he comes home uh, to tend his garden at the same time so that he can feed his family? No, that'd be ridiculous. Have you ever heard of a, a shepherd who goes out to tend the flock out into the pasture and then when he gets hungry or thirsty, he comes and brings the whole flock all the way back in town to get some, some milk from the vendor, to get some milk from a merchant? No, it's right there. It's at hand. So he just gets some of it right there. Common sense tells you that this is right, he says. Finally, Paul turns to the law of God given in the Old Testament in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? No. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things among you, from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Hmm. Paul has laid his case comprehensively and powerfully that the Corinthians should have been supporting Paul. In fact, we find out in 2 Corinthians, that's, it's, it's actually the poor Macedonians, the impoverished Macedonians, who are funding Paul's ministry while he's living in this metropolitan wealthy city. Essentially, shame on them. What effect do you think this would have had on the Corinthians? Woof. Ah. Paul is, is loading up the reasons for which, he could, have, he could have said this in three verses. He could have said it so simply and so succinctly. Instead, he goes on and on. Paul has been with them for years, laboring without pay, without complaint, without a peep, though he had every right to ask it of them. In fact, like I said, he was being funded by some poor Macedonian Christians. And so after 12 verses of this powerful, comprehensive argument as, as to Paul's rights, to payment from the Corinthian church, what the next phrase that you should expect to see is something along the lines of, pay up, you bums. Come on. Where's, send it. Send it my way. You've, you're delinquent on payment. Send it to me. Give it to me. I, I deserve it. I, you owe me. It's my right. Rather, Paul's, at least his preliminary conclusion is this. Nevertheless, this is verse 12, second half of verse 12. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul refused payment because doing so would have compromised the clarity of the gospel in Corinth. He would have seemed like every other peddler of the philosophies of the day who said, You can have salvation, and here are my fees. So what effect would this have had on the Corinthians to have heard Paul say so clearly and so vividly and so comprehensively, you owe me, and yet I will never take anything from you because of the gospel? Well, 
Imagine you were to leave town, uh, and you ask one of your friends to house sit. This sounds insane right now, I know, but as it goes. Uh, you ask one of your friends to, to, to watch uh, your house and collect your mail and do all those sort of things for you. And you come home, and your friend says, hey, uh, things went great, dogs fed, all the stuff, you know, got your mail. And by the way, I noticed you had a bill that came through, and I figured, you know what, I've got a little extra money, I'll just pay it for you. So I paid it. How are you going to respond? Well, it's going to depend on what that bill was. Was it the library saying, hey, you have a, you've got a fine. Uh, this book you checked out a month ago, it's, it's overdue, so we are going to need $1.20. And if you could just send that in. Did they pay that one? Well, then you'd say, thank you. That's, thank you. That's kind of, really, that was going to be a nuisance for me to deal with that. Great. Or was it your mortgage payment? Wow. Are you, ser you seriously? Oh, my goodness. What? You'd be astounded. Or maybe your student loans. Hey, I saw you had a big balance on your student loans. I just, I just thought, let me take that off your plate. I've got it. I'll just wipe it out. Oh my God, how overwhelmed would you be? That is to say, uh, when the Corinthians heard this, what would they, how would they have responded? Oh my goodness, Paul, what, you've done this for us. Uh, how mu must we then respond? But what does Paul do? He, he doesn't say this to extract payment from them, not to shame them, but to illustrate to them powerfully and personally the gospel pattern of Jesus. If the Corinthian church is going to love their neighbor and their weak brother among them, they don't just need to know whether they're following the law of God, although that's important, they also need to know, and perhaps even more importantly, at least with equal importance, whether they are understanding the heart of God. Our behavior can reveal whether we're honoring the law of God, certainly. It's external, we can see it. But what we do with our rights, what we do with our freedom, our privileges, our liberties, says everything about whether we really understand the gospel, the heart of God. The Corinthians said, look, we have the rights. I, I've got the right to eat this, I can eat that, I know, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not illegal, it's not against the law, I, I have freedom here. And Paul says, you might understand the law of God. In fact, I think you do, but you, you have missed the heart of God. The Corinthians believed that the way to living a fulfilling life would be found by obtaining and guarding and defending their personal liberties. They said, I have this freedom, I have that freedom, I can eat meat or not. And they would stand on that freedom, even if it had a detrimental effect on those around them. But Paul says, you're wrong about freedom. You have been wrong about what really represents the good life. Now, does the, does the idea that, uh, that having a good life can be attained through the, the accumulation of personal freedoms, does that sound strange to you? It really shouldn't. Maybe I'm just saying it too abstractly. Um, this problem is not a Corinthian problem. It's a human problem. It's not an ancient problem. It's a people problem. Perhaps no one has put it better than the great theologian Elsa of Arendelle in the movie, Disney movie Frozen uh, in her wonderful song, and try not to sing along, although I think you might. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That is, what it really means to be free is to be free from limitations, to be free from the constraints that others might put on you and your rights to what you might be able to do. That is, that I can become whatever I want to be, I can do what I want to do, and as long as it's not illegal, as long as it's not really hurting anyone, so to speak, then that's fine. 
And in fact, Elsa of Arendelle and the writers, you know, at Disney did not, they didn't invent this idea. They just enshrined it. They codified it into pop culture, something that was already well-worn. The cultural current of our day will inevitably and inexorably draw you toward the conclusion that the way for you to have a really good life is to remove every restraint to your self-determination, to do and be whatever you want. In stark contrast to that idea is the person of Jesus. If we want to see what it really looks like to live a fulfilling life, then we must look to him, the God-man, our our only example of holiness in human flesh, Jesus. Here's the truth. There has never been a more entitled person to walk the earth than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, not a sense of entitlement, but an actual entitlement. He, every particle in existence, every star in every galaxy, every atom that belonged to every being was held in sway to his will. Or as, as Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And how did he use his freedom? Did he stand on his rights waiting for us to sort of become the kind of people that deserve his salvation? Did he cross his arms in the heavens, ball up his fist, and say, turnabout's fair play. Good luck. I don't have to. He had every right. As he went to the cross, at any moment, he had the right, the authority, the liberty, the freedom to turn his oppressors into goo. Or to use Jesus' words, don't you know that at this moment I could call on my father and he would send a legion of angels and wipe this whole place out? Instead, he submitted every ounce of freedom to the mission of God. Why? For you. What does that mean? It means that following Jesus in the path of self-denial and obedience is not just a nice way to live. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a fresh insight. It's not just something exciting and interesting. It means that like a hammer is made to pound nails and a wrench is made to turn bolts, you were made to lay down the freedoms that God puts in your hands out of love for your brothers and sisters and neighbors. As natural as a fish shooting through the water is you laying down your rights for those around you. When you submit your rights to how you spend your time, your money, where you invest your skills, who you let into your headspace and your emotional energy, and on and on and on, it might feel unnatural. In fact, I'm sure it will feel unnatural. But you will in fact be doing what is most natural for a human to do you will be living most in line with the purpose for which you were created. If you want to have a life that's not only existentially fulfilling and spiritually meaningful, but to to follow after the most significant person in history, consider the pattern of Christ. And look no further. That is to say, and hear it again, submit every freedom to the mission of God. That's the first thing that we learn is the gospel pattern. We discern the gospel pattern. We see it here. Paul lays it out in terms of his own example, and then he goes on to apply it 
in, in his ministry. That's what we'll see next. In verses 19 through 23, we see the gospel strategy. We apply the gospel strategy. And so he says, he, he spells out he, how he applied this gospel strategy, this gospel pattern to his ministry no matter where he went. He says this in, in verses 19 through 23. Look down with me there. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. You learn that from Jesus. I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Should I just read that again in closing prayer? I just, I, do you see what I mean about just, just go in your time this week and visit this chapter again and just let it penetrate your heart and you will be blessed. Uh, but here we see Paul apply this gospel principle to his ministry. And you notice, notice very carefully what Paul says. He exhibits incredible flexibility in the cultural adaptation that he makes in his gospel ministry, in the way that he tries to reach people for Christ. He, Paul, that is to say, had freedom. He had the freedom to live, culturally speaking, however he wanted. Uh, he could live sort of as a Jew, as a Gentile. He could live, you know, in a certain sense, how he wanted. But he submitted those preferences for the sake of the gospel. And you note the key word here, and you probably heard me emphasizing it, as. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That is, the heart of the gospel is preserved. Christ dies for sinners. And yet, the cultural clothing for Paul was infinitely flexible. He wanted to be a person and he wanted to plant churches that were both faithful to Scripture and incredibly relevant to the context in which they were found. That is, when Paul went into a Jewish community, he knew that his, the cultural customs of their, of their community demanded certain conformities. Uh, what you ate, what you would wear, if a man has a beard or not, those types of things, uh, how you wash. Paul was willing to go along with so many of those things, even though being free in Christ, he didn't have to. But he said, I'll go along with these things because he knew that if he was going to win a clear hearing for the gospel of Jesus— that he would need to be flexible. His goal was to show them that their life story, if it was ever going to find a happy ending, no matter which culture we're talking about, if it's ever going to find a happy ending, it will only be by seeing that Jesus was who he said he was and did what we read that he did. But if he showed up at the synagogue with a bucket full of bacon and an unshaved, and a shaved face and and just kind of did spoke and did kind of however he wanted to and spoke Greek and sort of did anything, which things he was free to do, they would shut the door in his face. And he might say, oh, well, I guess, I guess ministry is offensive. No, you're offensive. The gospel is offensive, but we need to let the gospel offend, not us because we're jerks. That's what Paul knew here, right? Paul laid down his rights to eat or drink what he felt like so that they could hear the gospel clearly so as not to place an unnecessary offense in their path to Jesus. Not only that, he understood them. 
He came into their lives and formed relationships with those people with enough, enough depth that he could speak the gospel to them with incisiveness and clarity so that Jewish men and women who sat with Paul for long enough thought to themselves, I am not sure if he's right about Jesus. I kind of want him to be. And so with non-Jews, uh, he found a way to come to them in a way that showed that he respected their culture. He, he sympathized with some of their hopes and ambitions. He understood their heart's questions and hopes and their fears, their understanding of history and time and their, and their, as a people. And so he could speak to, the go- to them the gospel as a cultural insider. And so neighbors of Paul, Greek neighbors of Paul would sit with him and think, you know, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus, but... I sure wish the gospel were real. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? Uh, If we understand the gospel pattern, point one, right? How do we apply the gospel strategy in our own lives in the way that Paul does? We might say to ourselves, well, I'm not a church planner. I'm, I'm not a missionary. But we might remember last week when Paul Donaldson was up here reminding us that, in fact, everyone that has been called into the family of God has been called into the family business. That is, God's mission is to make everyone everywhere a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that they will only find the, the consummation of their human existence in the person of Jesus. That is what God is doing. Not when we are looking, but at all the time. And so, every person who has been filled with God's Spirit is on the mission of God. That is to say, we are missionaries. Um, There's no reason that we should think here in America that we aren't. Um, Everyone has a role to play. Everyone is a missionary in a certain sense. So when we read this, we should be saying, what does it look like for me to read this and say, to to the Iowa Cityan, I became as an Iowa Cityan. To the (laughs) Coravillian, I became as. To those, to my next door neighbor, I, became, I so came into their life and understood them that they may, may not have accepted the gospel yet, but they at least have been so compelled by the vision of what it is and, and the future glory of Jesus that they kind of wish it were true. They're, they're ready to want it to be true. So here are a few, few things I would share. First of all, develop a missionary heart. The first thing a missionary needs is a missionary heart. Uh, Last week, like I said, many of our global workers came back uh, to Parkview for our global outreach conference. Some literally physically were here, some via Zoom, and I got got the the chance to sit down with some of them. And as I was reflecting and thinking about this sermon, I thought, what if if, as I was sitting down with a few of those missionaries, um, I said, hey, how are things going out there? What's going on? What's, What's the Lord doing? And they said, you know, we've been there for so long and you know, the people there, they're just snobs. They just don't want to listen. They're, they're just not great people. And, you know, we'll keep doing the ministry, but, you know, it doesn't, I don't know. They're just, ugh. You would say, what? <laughs> this is a, the mission God has called you on, right? A, a heart of Christ for, for God's people, right? To, to see disciples made among the nations. What you, snobs? What? No, 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 come on. In fact, you would say, wow, you seem to have sort of the heart of Jonah, for mission. 
Jonah, the figure in the Old Testament, you might remember, famously swallowed by a fish, and because he was running away from the mission that God had called him to. God said, go to Nineveh, preach to them, call them to repentance. Jonah runs the opposite direction, finally comes back, and preaches the most, the worst gospel presentation you've probably ever heard. Here's what it was. Yet 40 days, and God's going to come and just whack you. Okay? You're gone. 40 days. No hope, by the way. Just, by the way, God's coming to smite you. Yep, bye. He didn't, he wanted them to get crushed, right? And in fact, that's kind of the whole book of Jonah is sort of Jonah's heart of not love and God's sort of rebuke of them. Contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, who, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem to be crucified by his people, says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would gather, I I long to gather you under my wings like a hen with its little chicks to protect you from the wrath that is to come, but you wouldn't let me. Completely serious about the problems that he sees in the community, in the culture, not not holding back, not saying, well, I can accept anything because it's all about Jesus. No, he said, there's some sinful problems here, but I am so overwhelmed with love that I will move in, even if it means giving up my rights and freedoms, even if it means suffering. Develop a missionary heart. Look at the missionary heart of Jesus. Second, develop a missionary mind or cultivate a missionary mind. If you, again, were to go on a, and be part of a missionary team to a tribe in the Amazon, let's say, uh, you wouldn't just walk in and sort of try to speak to them in English and, and use all the sort of stories that we might use here. You would, you would spend time, a good amount of time, trying to understand them their history, their language, the way that they, they express themselves. You would, you would want to find out, what do they find compelling? What do they find beautiful? What are their greatest hopes? What are their fears? Uh, what do they want most out of life? Um, how, do they, how do they expect you to relate to them? And, and all those kinds of things, on and on and on. In the same way, you can do that with your friends and neighbors. Now, don't be a weirdo. <laughs> don't bring a notebook and write notes on your neighbors and all that. No, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. But get to know them. Assume that that's part of faithfully proclaiming the gospel to someone, is understanding them. Try to, and, and I think the simplest way would be when you have conversations with your friends and neighbors, try to take just one step further than you might typically take. Uh, I have a lot more ideas on this and maybe we'll, we'll send some more resources your way, but develop a missionary mind. Begin to think about what how does Jesus connect to their story? How can I show them that their story will only find a happy ending in Jesus? Not with sort of a necessarily generic gospel presentation, but really showing them, hey, you're, you're hungry for approval, but you're never going to get it in the way that you want it. But you were made for approval. And you know what? The, God the Father offers you approval that you will never get in your job for free because of what Christ has done for you. That's different from, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, read John 3.16. That's great. I think I've read it this morning. It was wonderful. It was lovely. Uh, but to, to get to the heart of what they most desire and show them that their story will only find a happy ending in Jesus. Finally, submit every, or sorry, finally, develop missionary practices. So missionary heart, mind, and practices. In the same way, if you're a missionary to France, uh, you're planning a church in France, you wouldn't just sort of every day head off to work stop wherever you feel like, come home, and then sort of go to church on Sunday and consider that your whole thing. No. Uh, You would say, hmm, how can I find places to rub shoulders with the people in my city? How can I find ways to 
to, to make relationships that otherwise probably aren't going to happen. Uh, you would go out of your way. You'd think about your own giftings. Are there places where God has called me to specifically? You begin praying and saying, where are you calling me, Lord? And developing habits that, that relate to where God is calling you to. So that is to say, submit your heart, mind, and practices to the mission of God because we're submitting every freedom to the mission of God. And finally, if we're going to ever do any of this, we must accept the gospel power. We must embrace the gospel's power. And that's what Paul points us to in the last few verses of this passage. So in verses 24 and 25, Paul gives this final vision. He, like a good preacher, he gives an illustration uh, to, to compel them and to put steel in their spines as he's called them to submit these freedoms. It's not easy to do, by the way. He says this in verse 24. You can read with me. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the price? prize? So run that you may obtain it. By the way, there's, right there is the only imperative in the entire passage. Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, sort of a crown that they would get for winning a race, but we an imperishable one. It's this vision of, of the Olympic athlete. And actually, in the city of Corinth, they held the Ismian Games. Uh, they were sort of second in rank to the Olympic Games. They were held every other year. And so this would be a familiar image to them. The idea of, and, and everyone in Corinth would have known of, you know, famous athletes around the city, almost like we would have today. Um, and, and they would become known for their self-discipline. That every second of their life was sort of filtered according to this grand vision that one day they would win the race, they would win the match, they would win the prize, they would, after all of their work, they would get up on the podium and in front of all the people whose approval they most desperately wanted and, even, and their own, receive and, and hear, you were the best. And in that moment, they would know that all of the training, all of the self-denial that they practiced, all of the freedoms that they restricted themselves, right? You know, even today we sort of think of, oh, the Olympic athlete want to go get a gold medal, right? And every step along the way, what do they do? They don't live any way they want to. Sure, they have the freedom to sit on the couch like you and me and eat Cheetos and uh, wild cherry Pepsi and just go crazy, right? They, can, they could do that and take naps all day, right? But instead, what do they do? They, they spend every moment filtering every decision and every little freedom through the idea that I want to scour my life for every advantage, every little marginal gain. They shave their arms, Okay, they don't, have, they don't go on a date, they don't have a drink, they don't have a smoke, they don't do anything that would be detrimental to the mission that they have in front of us with the goal of one grand vision, that one day I'll stand on the podium and hear that I, am, I have achieved it, that grand vision. And all of those little sacrifices, all those times I gave up freedom, were so worth it. Paul says, everyone lives their life this way with a grand, compelling, and controlling vision that I'm going to say no to some things and yes to some things in hope that I will achieve it. The difference, Paul says, is that Christ has shown us what it really means to be free. To live in line with our purpose. While the athlete makes every decision with the singular purpose of victory in mind, believers in Jesus make every decision and submit every freedom with one grand vision in mind. What is it? We get a glimpse of it in verse 25. That the athletes, they do it for a perishable wreath, something that's going to fade. And la- it was actually, I read this week, made of celery. I mean, come on. 
It's, it's, things going to be gray in two weeks, right? Mushy and, and it'll be tossed out. But he says, we do it for an imperishable one. Paul is pointing the Corinthian church forward to the day when they, like that Olympian athlete, will stand in utter victory. Their course complete. But instead of thinking of the roaring crowds and their approval, they will be awash in the approval of the one who matters most, church. As you think about the freedoms that God has given you, the liberty that you have to live for self or for the sake of the gospel, let this be our controlling, compelling vision that one day you and I will stand before the risen Christ and he will look us in the eye and see all of us and he will say, well done. Well done. And he will not be joking. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Will we join him in that mission? Will we join him in this mission? The answer to this question will determine our answer. Have we understood the cross? Have we understood his sacrifice? Has it penetrated our hearts? Has it touched us at the deepest level? The, de- the degree to which we understand Christ's love for us is the degree to which we will follow him into the lives of our friends and neighbors with the good news of Jesus. So let's let that vision control us. Let's be a 1 Corinthians 9 church where we don't stand on our rights, but we lay them down for the sake of Christ. Let's submit our minds, our schedules, our, our budgets, our free time, our hearts today to this vision of Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have been so kind. We, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the way that he has shown us not only the example of laying down our freedoms, his freedoms for our sake, but that he has given us the power within us by giving us the approval that we most desperately long for, that we most desperately need, that our hearts most desperately need. We can labor freely. We can re- labor knowing that there's no loss We will lose nothing when we deny ourselves and in every day, in the dozens of ways that you would call us to deny ourselves, we will lose nothing. And we know that because we can look to Jesus who has offered everything. So help us open our ears and eyes. Help us to evaluate ourselves in this moment. Speak to us by your spirit and make us the kind of church that embodies this passage today. What a glory, Lord. And do it all for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.